this evening our speaker is uh, Dr. Suvik Nahar of the University of Glasgow. That's correct, I think. Yeah. Um, Suvik has uh, written extensively on the history of cricket and he's here this evening to talk to us about cricket and the post-colonial city. So I'll ask you to take it away, Suvik. Uh, thank you so much, Jeff. And it's really good to be here and talk about the extent to which cricket has been useful for us historians to understand why Calcutta in particular has become a post-colonial city and the extent to which it can really be called a post-colonial city and whether the transition from colonialism to post-colonialism is a historical process that has been concluded and how exactly can we make sense of it through the game of cricket. Now, plenty of historians have uh, circulated a lot of discourses regarding what really colonialism or post-colonialism means, so I'm not really getting into all that. And before coming here, I was simply thinking of a contemporary incident that could perhaps encapsulate some of the things that I would be discussing today. And the thing that really caught my eye yesterday was a meme that was circulated through Facebook after the conclusion of the match between India and England. So the meme was, it could be quite difficult for non-Indians or who are not exactly well versed in the history of the British Empire in India to understand because it simply showed a figure of an English administrator in India who was Robert Clive and he kind of amassed huge wealth uh, from his uh, military annexation of different Indian territories in the middle of the 18th century and he became the first governor general of the East India Company in uh, Bengal in particular. And then there was a caption which said that Clive was admonishing Ben Stokes for not being able to uh, vanquish a team that included some guy named Siraj and Clive was able to vanquish the last Nawab of Bengal who was Siraj Dola, so it was a fun play on that. Now, historians can have a field day in interpreting a visual material like that, thinking that it reeks of the resonance of post-colonialism as an antipathy or an antagonism to colonialism. But if we really look at the history of cricket's appropriation in Bengal and on a wider framework throughout India, we are kind of faced with a strange paradox in which Indians both loved cricket and the British people and also despised both these two because they thought cricket was kind of the ultimate identity of a British person and since the British Empire was essentially bad or exploitative towards Indians so it should be despised and discarded. So they were both these schools of thought and when I started doing my PhD I was guided by this very question so why was cricket so popular in post-colonial India and there, there were plenty of um, assertions against the vestiges of British culture such as the English language to an extent British food as well and some of the political parties in India called for the abolition of different British institutions based on which we have like uh, understood the constitutional foundation of modern India, there were certain backlashes against 
various specific iterations of British culture in India, but cricket kind of just emerged scot-free from all these political problems that raged throughout the country in the 1950s. So whenever somebody understands or somebody asks me, so why I did this PhD and which was turned into a book that was published last year. So there are two answers to it. The simple answer is just because I wanted to understand this thing. So I went on exploring it further. And if somebody would like to have a more nuanced, analytical and complex uh, answer to these questions, I would just tell the person a few stories to begin with, such as what the Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies said to the press, particularly the Times of India, when he was in Calcutta in 1951 on the way to London for the Commonwealth Prime Minister's Conference. He was taken around the city in a car and he was taken by surprise seeing people playing cricket in a country which was ravaged by colonialism and it was still trying to find its feet. It had just only just become a republic after 200 years of colonial rule and everybody was playing cricket quite merrily across the city. So he made a statement that when I was driven around Calcutta, to my joy, I found that on every piece of park lawn, people were playing cricket. I pointed to this and said to the gentleman who was accompanying me, well, there we, there you are. There's nothing wrong with this country from anybody's point of view. Everybody's playing cricket on the park lawns. So what was really so special about cricket and why was it so important to a large number of people? A letter written by the school teacher O.H.T. Dudley to the Times newspaper in 1932 shows that Indians might have started to think of cricket as a way of life, much more than a pastime, and it happened probably at the turn of the 20th century. So in that letter, Dudley writes that 25 years ago, I went out to India to teach English. I have come back with a rich reward in the following sentence from an Indian schoolboy's essay on cricket, which says, cricket is a very comfortable game, in it we disremember all our conditions. And when a letter writer introduced the India-England test match in Calcutta in 1972, as the battle between the bat and the ball that had solved all of Bengal's socio-political problems, it did not really come across as sarcastic but rather quite entranced by the impact an event that was spread over five days could have over the long-term rules of a state of 45 million people. Later on, the journalist Shomogottacharjo recalled that cricket was a surefire conversational opener during his student days in England in the 1990s. And he simply assumed that if you are Indian, you must be crazy about cricket. That was the general uh, thinking pattern that most of the British people he came into contact with had. So regardless of whether cricket has delivered radical social change or produced a sense of ethnic and cultural affiliation, the identities built around it has generated intense public conversations. Cricket has built up a nationwide spread and mobilized a large and diverse popular following. Its networks have crisscrossed the dynamics and domains of colonialism, nationalism, economy, culture, 
and various forms of identity, and it has been at once an imperial game, a vehicle of colonial modernity and cultural hybridity, and a tool of nationalist resistance, particularly in the colonial period. Now, the question that I wanted to ask was, why does the post-colonial Indian identify with this colonial and imperial sport in the way that they have? Is the English is the engagement with English culture a tool for empowering or modernizing themselves as Indians? And what does cricket really tell us about the making of a post-colonial public culture? And the final question is definitely whether there is anything Indian about cricket in India. So in my book, I have tried to explore the various modes through which the public have been molded as cricket followers, and it has examined the emergence of a post-colonial society through the lens of cricket. Now, writing a history of post-colonial India based off the game of cricket is, was kind of a very daunting initiative because not many people have undertaken such a task, and most of the historians in the mainstream kind of overlook the value that cricket and other sports or even mass entertainment can have in examining the nuances of the making of post-coloniality. Generally, the task of reinterpreting colonial history with more agency given to indigenous forms and processes has taken the historians of colonial India to some very unusual sites and practices. People have written about disease, insects, paperwork, punch houses, even cricket, but the same has not really been translated into the history of post-colonial India. Historians have paid attention to the vulnerabilities and the collaborative nature of the British Empire, and these works articulate a bottom-up version of how indigenous groups participated in colonial governance and in the nebulous process called colonial modernity. A study of the interaction between British and Indian people, objects, and practices enables one to understand colonization and modernization at both symbolic and institutional levels. Now, this perspective has been very useful in studies in the emergence of Indian nationhood through colonial sport. There are several historians of colonial Indian cricket, Richard Cashman, Ashish Nondi, Ramchandra Guha, Buriya Mujumdar, and Prashant Kidambi. And they have all shown how little the British really invested materially and intellectually in spreading cricket and modern India. Their works do not really explicitly engage with the colonial modernity framework, but they have used its tools to move beyond Eurocentric histories of sport and refuted the importance that is usually given by sport historians to cultural imperialism in the diffusion of sport. They have argued that since the mid-19th century, Indians across class, caste, religious, and gender divides have shaped their identities around cricket. It happened through a number of ways, such as the mimicry of the Victorian approach to team sports, resisting the British Empire through cricket, constructing identities, successful commercialization, and this all combined into generating a cricket culture which, in which the British were more often than not involved. 
In a way, their works echo the historian C.A. Bailey's research in indigenous commercial and intellectual groups who appropriated certain colonial institutions towards their own benefit. Two unresolved questions from this literature are pursued in my book. First, while these historians have convincingly refuted the primacy of cultural imperialism and established the process of a two-way transfer of culture, they have rarely examined how the vestiges of, of the colonial period shaped cricket in independent India. And secondly, they have hardly considered how cricket acted as a source of identity and popular culture in everyday life. Through addressing these two questions, my book expands the historical understanding of post-colonial India. The game's post-colonial history, where I employ the term post-colonial to denote both the temporal and ideological transition from the British Raj to an independent polity, raise a number of new questions in regard to the whys and hows of this popularity. Post-coloniality, for me, is a process of reconstructing a region's political, social, and cultural spaces with emergent ideals and identities transforming, subsuming, or replacing colonial institutions. So the book essentially makes two key contributions. One, it decenters the Indian nation as the fulcrum around which much of South Asian history and the history of sport has been written. And secondly, it interrogates non-governmental textual sources and helps to rethink the construction of post-colonial history outside conventional governmental archives. So I start with a very simple premise that cricket was important to at least some Indians and I seek to understand what this attachment meant for post-coloniality. And I've been mindful of the cultural theorist Kwame Anthony Appiah's assertion about the pitfalls of assigning undue importance to historical actors and processes. As Appiah had said, the bicycle was invented and taken across the globe by the white person, but the bicycle's popularity in Africa was not a byproduct of colonial modernity and the civilizing process. The machine won over Africans because of its usefulness rather than foreignness and modernizing capacity. So it's kind of the simplest exploration or uh, analysis is the best kind of the Occam's razor thing. And in the same way, I contend that cricket thrived in India mainly because a large number of Indians liked it, which is quite a simple explanation. And then I go on to examine the impact of outside influences such as the partition, economic stagnation in the 1950s and 60s, overpopulation of India, the restrictions in places of leisure, etc., in understanding whether cricket can provide a useful context for analyzing how it affected Indian society. Now, I was very intrigued by a fictitious discussion that took place on a Sunday morning sometime in 1960 among a group of friends who had assembled in a house in Howrah, which is a town across the river from Calcutta. So the group of friends consisted of some high intellectuals, three professors, two authors, two clerks, one school teacher, one lawyer, one business person, one government officer, one engineer, aged from 20 to 45, so kind of representing 
a white cross-section of the society. And in that meeting, they debated if cricket was really worth its popularity. In the opinion of one of the authors present at the meeting, cricket was an illegitimate, immoral, ill-conceived, illogical English pursuit. The sight of two batsmen, so they used the term batsman rather than batter, so the sight of two batsmen dominating 11 fielders reflected an obscene bureaucracy, and 11 fielders closing in on two batsmen resembled a slaughter. <laughs> According to him, cricket was a dreadful remnant of the British rule in India. Now, a Marxist philosopher who taught at the University of Calcutta and was friends with Bertrand Russell said that no progressive country in the world played cricket. He cited the examples of several countries that were not interested in cricket at all. Germany, the land of, apparently the land of the greatest scientists and philosophers. He gave several examples such as France, leader in pursuits of intellect, Russia, the rebellious redeemer of humanity, US, the champion of consumerist living, China, full of diligent people, none of them play cricket at all. So the critics amongst this group of friends declared that cricket was merely a passive recreation that was suitable for people of wealth and leisure, and cricket's cultural Englishness was deeply problematic for the post-colonial nation. At this point, a professor of Bengali at the University of Calcutta, Shankari Prashad Boshu, launched a long polemic in India's favor, which was quite convenient because he was the author of this piece. So he gave himself the final word in this debate. But in it, he made an a priori assumption that while the lack of faults was an admirable quality for a country, the absence of certain excellence, which according to him was cricket, was not really a merit or something to be praised. He said that England was no less civilized or developed than the nations that the others had mentioned. And one of the virtues that had contributed to England's rise to power were parliamentary democracy, drama, and cricket. And he concluded that it was shameful that the other so-called developed countries did not play cricket. So he turned the entire debate around on its head. Sport followers, can sometimes dislike certain aspects of the game, such as commercialism, but the sports press often sequesters such contradictions from view in the mythic quest for building a popular image for sport. Historians of sport have also been taken to task for overlooking critical responses to sport and in this way failing to offer a balanced perspective of sports reception in the wider society. Sometimes historians of cricket in India have shown a similar proneness for ignoring the prevalence of anti-cricket sentiment in the country. One of the exceptions to this is Ramchandra Guha's sketch of the Congress politician B.V. Keskar, who was a Sorbonne-educated nationalist who published an article entitled Will Cricket Quit India with the British in 1946? And articles such as this shows that cricket's path to popularity was fraught with ideological battles. Keskers was just an isolated case in the long-standing dispute that saw cricket lose its romantic innocence and become a bridgehead for different political approaches regarding making India a post-colonial nation-state. Several politicians wanted cricket to be abolished, and even 
the people did not really have unsparing support for cricket. However, most of the leading journalists in the country across languages presented cricket as everyone's favorite sport to the best of their abilities, hiding all the challenges to the sport's ideologies and dismissing anti-cricket sentiments as frivolous. So in a way, they were quite, their response to criticisms of cricket was quite similar to this letter that was published in the Times in 1968. In this letter, an infuriated cricket lover from Aberdeen, DM Britain, writes that now I know that this country is finished. On Saturday, with Australia playing, I asked a London cabbie to take me to Lord's and had to show him the way. His tone conveyed the sense that unfamiliarity with the country's premier cricket ground was a crime and England's position in the world depended on how seriously its residents took cricket. Four years later, in 1972, a reader of the daily Doinik Boshumudi in Bengali, which was a left-leaning newspaper, he wrote a letter to the editor saying that cricket is not simply a game for the English, it is a symbol of principle and discipline, the life force of the English character. Cricket runs in the blood of English cricketers. So letters like this testifies to the deep love of some Indians for cricket's moral values and connection with Englishness. The publication of such a letter in a socialist newspaper that was decidedly anti-West and anti-capitalism exemplified cricket's strange acclaim as a sport that brought together bourgeois and proletarian socialism. Cricket followers, such as this particular reader, were bound by a culture of forgiveness in which they were willing to forget Britain's imperial atrocities by fixating on the great gift of cricket. I intend to call this selective admiration of English culture as syndicated Englishness. In, in this, I'm inspired by the historian David Hardiman's use of the term syndicated Ayurveda and Romila Thapar's definition of syndicated Hinduism. In Hardiman's words, syndicates of people seek, through combination, organization, and publicity, to establish a particular limited notion of their practice that set it apart from other forms of practice. I argue that certain Indian authors created some derivative conventions by fusing the Victorian paradigms of cricket and emergent forms of Indian post-colonial nationalism. These conventions helped to set cricket apart from other despised vestiges of the British Empire. What does the respect for England's national game in a former colony with a long history of anti-colonial struggles suggest? To what extent was cricket's image as the life force of England's character a syndicated construct? How did the followers of cricket defend the sport against criticism of its foreignness and superfluity in the Indian context. I looked into the debate over cricket's legitimacy in late colonial and post-colonial post India to explore the dynamics of a form of culture's assimilation against the most widely performed imperial iconoclasm. Cricket's consecration as one of the most popular team sports in 20th century India resulted from a successful domestication of an Indian imperial tradition. 
Richard Cashman has drawn attention to two interpretations of cricket's colonial spread. One was cricket was without doubt part of British imperial agenda of indoctrinating colonial subjects. And second, indigenous elements had a bigger role than colonial proselytizers in accepting and appropriating cricket. He asks a very pertinent question, where does the promoting hand of the colonial master stop and where does the adopting and assimilating indigenous tradition start? Or was it that many colonial subjects chose to pursue a game because of the ideology or even in spite of it, because it suited them to take up cricket for their own reasons, to which he offers no clear answer. Mangan's studies of the inculcation of the values of Western sport through colonial school curriculum or moral training suggest several discrepancies in the process of acculturation. They, these were most evident in the appropriation of Western sport in missionary schools and colleges in various countries. While Indians studying in these institutions were known to be sport lovers, African students preferred education to sport. Mangan's conclusions, based upon ideology as an analytical tool and a broad brush survey of a small number of institutions that were barely representative of India, kind of generalized the role of colonial education. And a deeper look at, uh, at the domestication of the game reveals some tensions between nationalist appropriation and colonial resentment. The Indian habit of playing football barefoot made the Europeans wonder, but four Mohan Bagan players, a local club in Calcutta, turning out in dhotis, which was a long cotton cloth wrapped around the legs and knotted at the waist in a match in 1931, annoyed their opponent, the Calcutta Cricket Club. The problem started when the Calcutta Cricket Club's captain, Reggie Langton, asked one of the fielders why he was wearing such a cloth instead of trousers, and the person said it was more comfortable than trousers, after which Langton allegedly threatened he would ensure Mohan Bagan would never play at the Eden Gardens. Afterward, the Indian club refused to have lunch and come out to bat in their turn, and Langton's comment came under a barrage of criticism from local sport clubs. He wrote a letter to the Statesman newspaper in denial and added that his intention was to evoke cricket's etiquette and approved costume. The correspondent of the Times of India newspaper felt that the letter did little to assuage Indians who viewed this incident as a racial affront. Lacton's intervention transformed the dress of, uh, of necessity into a political sign. British colonizers were not known to have enforced their clothing style on Indians. Rather, the Indians aspiring to emulate the British chose to dress like them in public. The nationalist movement's anti-foreign cloth propaganda caused a sartorial dilemma regarding the propriety of one's clothes and ensured that the Europeanization of Indian dress took place very slowly. Cricket in Indian clothing probably gave Lacton a chilling premonition about the shrinking of English influence in the country, which meant perhaps that the decolonization of Indian cricket was underway. Some of cricket's ideological verbiage, such as honesty and civility, struck a chord with many Indians. The former uh, finance minister of West Bengal, 
Ashok Mitra recalled in his autobiography the excitement in his politically conscious family which had boycotted British clothes and entertainment when an MCC side led by Douglas Jardine played a test match in Calcutta in 1933-34. The freedom fighter Binoy Bosch, who was renowned for his daring attack on the Secretariat building in Calcutta in 1930, was a good cricketer. Two of his younger brothers played cricket for the state in the 1940s and 60s, one of them even captained the state. Cricket never lacked followers who were in awe of what the game represented to the English. A high court judge and the cousin of the international cricketer Pankoj Rai was one to take the lesson of modern masculinity seriously enough. He played for East Bengal Club in Calcutta and then Edgeware Club while he studied law in London. As a cricketer, he would not dispute the umpire's call even when the latter had got it wrong. A story goes that in a match against Mohan Bagan in 1938, he was at the crease with his team, town club, nine wickets down and staring in defeat. One of his teammates, not one to accept defeat, prematurely signaled end of play by ringing bells. And when he found out about this trick, he led the teams back to the field so that the opposition got the victory they deserved. He later said that cricketers from colonial times respected senior cricketers like elder brothers and the captain as a leader. So according to him, cricket was both blissful and a lesson in etiquette. So this story shows the positive influence of cricket's Englishness on character building. There are also counter stories such as Salman Rushdie's sketch of Saladin Chamcha, one of the two protagonists in the Satanic Verses, and he exposes a very bizarre appropriation of cricket. Saladin was in favor of preserving the sanctity of English culture, and he hated any attempt of emulation by Indians. He was very contentious of India, and he supported England when they came to the Brabourne Stadium for a test match. He really wanted England to defeat the local upstarts for the proper order of things to be maintained. Now, Rusty's characterization of Anglophiles who lived with a fractured identity between Englishness and Indianness in a bid to establish a cultural fidelity to the colonizers was not really unheard of in real life. Situated at the other end of the spectrum to people who admired England and sought to pick the best of both worlds, these self-deresonating Indians supposedly embodied the worst of both cultures. Even after India's independence in 1947, England never ceased to be a part of India's everyday life, despite much opposition. The history of the relationship of Indians with cricket is essentially a history of this ambivalence. Various groups of Indians were opposed to playing cricket, barely a week into India's independence. Marathi newspapers from Pune were full of articles and letters on the pros and cons of continuing to play cricket. One group argued that cricket should follow the departing British back to the country of its origin. Another camp led by Captain S.V. Damle from the Maharashtra Physical Culture Institute said that cricket could stay, but educational institutions must stop allocating funds to cricket and should distribute their resources equally amongst all sports. 
this provoked several students organizations in colleges to launch campaigns against cricket they approached the authorities of a number of schools demanding reduction of their cricket budget former cricketer db devudhar who considered cricket to be an important connection to the commonwealth chastised this as wanton vandalism he admitted that cricket was more expensive to organize than other sports but if india were to continue playing international cricket the game had to be nurtured carefully at the grassroots level and cricketers had to be reared through schools colleges and chimkhanas according to him there is no other game as spectacular as dignified as glamorous as cricket where even the best player can be turned into a non entity by one single piece of bowling or fielding it is very interesting to note that the critics of cricket rarely complained against football or hockey two other mass sports introduced to india by the british in their cynical judgment cricket in independent india amounted to a perverted form of anglophilia whereas football hockey tennis and badminton were not really that bad as journalist ns ramaswamy pointed out the austere and the killjoys thought that cricket was an anathema because of its distinctive foreignness the sport served the interests of the british empire and would destroy india unless it was summarily abolished now the former colonizers favorite sport was suspected to have the potential to push the decolonized citizens back towards the colonial culture that indians had worked so hard to dispel the assimilation of indians in the now officially defunct colonial project could alienate them from the task of building a post-colonial nation that could undermine the very logic of the nationalist drive towards self-determination. Englishness and Anglophilia were not clearly defined at any moment by the proponents of anti-cricket sentiments, and cricket continued to flourish despite opposition. And within decades of independence, it became the most popular sport even in Calcutta, which was historically the capital of football. two things were quite important in this turnaround one was cricket's the proliferation of the narratives of cricket's englishness in the press and literature played a significant role in the rise of cricket cricket lovers needed a strong justification for their fascination with cricket in order for the sport to survive football had a stronger presence than cricket in calcutta so the cricket lovers found an instrument in cricket's englishness the very reason why a multitude of people were against the sport they reproduced the interpretation of this ideology in the vernacular which enabled the formation of a large indigenous subculture with an english imprint In many ways cricket writing in Bengali was a belated project it started in earnest in the 1960s more than half a century after a similar process had begun in England but this delay arguably afforded authors a useful critical distance theirs was a big leap forward from english writings in terms of subject and style of writing if not in volume and it was the first time that indian cricket writing moved beyond coaching guides match reports or simply praise for fair play and gentlemanly behavior to engage with complex cultural issues the authors studied the value systems aged into anglo-australian cricket writings adopted this context to the local context 
Episodes from 19th century interwar and post-war cricket occupy the same imaginary time in this emerging literature. The invocation of cricket's past as a golden age was drawn from similar examples from English authors. As Anthony Bateman has argued, the past was a popular trope when cricket began to be framed as a product of modernity in late 19th century England, and the history of cricket in a post-colonial state was marked by both denunciation and admiration for this colonial cricket culture. This sometimes led to several anomalies, such as the following statement made by the journalist Mukul Dotto. We asked our children to stop playing and study. We claim to be good sportsmen in job applications since the English loved sports. We never took sports seriously enough to inculcate true sporting spirit in us. That is why not many sports persons actually possess sporting spirit. Yet, some people have learned the spirit have, have, and have prospered in their occupations by its successful application. Cricket's ideologies had two distinctive overtones in independent India, with which I called inherited Englishness and practiced, which is syndicated rather than decolonized Englishness. This indication enabled people to draw upon Homi Bhabha's notion of the role of theory and writing to interrupt the dominant and dominating strategies of generalization within a cultural or communicative or interpretational community. The nature of the anxiety of appropriating cricket changed with the political decolonization of India but the colonial denotations of cricket were ingrained too deeply in public life to be delinked in a short time. Cricket, therefore, created intermediate identities in the 1950s, and these identities were embedded in writings and formed the foundations of cricket's post-coloniality in India. Although several political parties demanded outright rejection of colonial traditions, Cricket had become so commonplace and componential of society that it could not really be separated from the growing sense of Indianness and yet retained its Englishness through literary tropes. The practice of cricket as a sport was hybridized as its extrinsic codes remained intact, but it was translated into its new vernacular meanings at various levels of appropriation, which transformed the domain of its ideological codes. There were several ideological codes which turned out to be quite popular with Bengali readers, particularly the amateurish and bucolic ideal of cricket. It sat very well in the imagination of a number of people, while many others could not really find any romance in such characterization. Rusticity was an essential part of cricket's Englishness, which was exploited to a large extent by Bengali cricket writers. They continued to write about dreamlike visions of cricket, how certain Indians absorbed European civilizational values more readily, more adroitly through the game of cricket. They talked about a vanishing folk culture of Bengal that only cricket that could survive only through cricket. So they tried creating a transcultural world which was mutating fairly selectively. There were several portrayals of 
cricketers and the game itself that it did not distinguish between the rich and the poor, the ruler and the subjects, which were purely ideological. But these portrayals of cricket turned out to be quite popular and cricket's popularity owed quite a lot to this ardent literaturization of cricket, which presented a very particular perspective of several elite authors and inscribed these values of cricket upon a wider reading mass of people. Arguments against cricket were tied up with a malice towards the lingering traces of Imperial Britain, this often referred to English language and culture as corollary infestations by a regime of absurdity. The India MCC match of 1972, which was won by India, drew a flurry of letters about the ethics of playing cricket. A reader wrote to the Anandavajar Putrika that cricket was an unnecessary excess indulged by a nation plagued by problems such as unemployment, famine, inflation, and other grave problems. He suspected a conspiracy hatched by the press in connivance with the government to promote cricket as the opiate of the masses and appealed to readers to see through this corruption of socialist ideals. Among other readers, cricket was called a virus. There was suspicion that the game might not qualify as a sport at all, since not more than three or four countries played it. It generated grudge and hatred between opponents, was guided by the fear of being upstaged by the other. In contrast, other readers argued that should cricket be banned on account of its foreignness, every other competitive national sport would have to be stopped too, since all of them were transmitted from abroad. He was in favor of giving the country's half billion people the freedom to decide whether they would like cricket to continue. And several other later writers contended that cricket should not be tolerated and their opinions were resisted by several other people at the same time. So this went on for several decades on the occasion of the India-England test match in 1977, another uh, letter to the editor says that about a million people were wasting their time after a nonsense sport. Three football matches could have been organized at the Eden Gardens instead of hosting a test match. The government should consider taking legal measure to abolish England's legacy. Another reader was unhappy with cricket's slow pace and lack of intensity. He had found the previous week's national volleyball championship to be more lively. Another reader made a strange estimate that a lot of working hours were misused when a foreign team played a test series in India. And there were constant references to exploitive British imperialists and the local Indian princes who have historically indulged in extravagances to have thrust cricket upon India and the need for the people to see through this conspiracy and say that cricket was like an opium with which people were poisoning themselves willingly. Several people tried to synthesize what they perceived as the good and bad aspects of cricket. A cricket follower wrote in a letter to the editor of Jugantar that language and cricket were the only positive legacies of the British Empire. However, just as cricket was thought to be a tool of entertainment that masked everyday reality, we speculated if cricket was introduced 
to India as a plot to keep the colonial youth away from freedom struggle. That couldn't really have been true because very few people played cricket outside the metropolis. A similar barrage of opinions, points and counterpoints would appear during every test match in most of the uh, during most of the metropolitan cricket venues in the local newspapers. So to conclude, the main question that I wanted to raise was how cricket survived decades of ideological challenge and came to be canonized as India's ideal pursuit and what it really says about the braiding of England and India around transplanted cultural practices of Englishness. There was a struggle between highly effective myths surrounding cricket and the implicit political polemics which were no less significant for quite a large number of people. Because in India, even if we talk about 1% or 2% of the people, we are still talking about millions of people with their own subjectivities and opinions. So several of these discourses surrounding the pros and cons of playing cricket featured in newspapers and political rallies, and they served to deterritorialize cricket from its station of origin. The incomplete integration of cricket's Englishness to Indian society highlighted the relevance of perception in transnational encounters. There were constant debates surrounding cricket's ideological content and the open possibility of both becoming and resisting the English through cricket accorded the sport its formative role in a post-colonial public culture. It ceased to be just another sport as soon as the public started defining its character. Answers are more important than questions in postmodern criticism as they have the ability to reconstruct the question by shifting its meaning. Texts facilitated this negotiation by writing the answers given by a large number of actors into concrete historical forms and hence producing a visible and long-term account of similarity or difference. This dilemma of appropriating a fundamentally English concept was not exceptionally Indian. Australian Aboriginals were never assimilated into the white pastime of cricket until very recently, for which the racist attitude of white settlers were to be held responsible. Cricket did not afford the Aboriginals any social mobility or selection in the national state teams, so averse were the settlers to share power, provide moral tutelage, or encourage advancement of the other. Indians probably possessed greater social capital to be in control of their political life and resistance rhetoric compared to the Australian Aboriginals. Although in the minority, critics of cricket in India have voiced dissent with an extraordinary liberty. A reason could be that these criticisms were not considered subversive enough to erode cricket's popularity. Moreover, critics provided the context within which cricket's ideologies could resolve the prejudices against the sport's alleged imperialist and capitalist structure. The question of ethics left cricket hanging in a balance that continues to provide rather engrossing content for newspaper, even in 2023, when a large number of people continue to question whether it's morally right to play cricket or if an nation like India 
does really afford to play an expensive game like cricket. So there is no particular answer to that, but that's when the historian's craft really can fulfill its objective, because when there is an open-ended debate, we historians have a field day. Uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>
but then I, I, I would say it was mainly because of the local actors. Some of them were much more conducive towards appropriating cricket and they exercised their wealth or their patronage towards cricket, which made cricket popular in certain parts of the globe. If, if we talk about India as a country, it was not really uniformly popular in India up until the 1980s, I would say. In Bengal, football was almost always more popular than cricket and cricket kind of peeped football in popularity primarily in the 1990s, I would say. So most of my family members, relatives and the older generation of people that I had spoken to when I was growing up in the 1990s, so almost all of them favored football more than they liked cricket. But even then, all of them would be uh, sentimentally invested in cricket whenever it was played and there was not really much dissension about cricket's Englishness or anything. So when I was growing up, the main rival, the enemy, was Australia and not England. <laughs> okay. Um, we have a question in the Zoom room. So Abhinava, you've got your hand raised. Would you like to unmute and ask your question? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I hope I am audible. Yeah, I hope I am audible. Can yeah, you... yeah, 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 we can hear you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations, Avik. Uh, yes. You, uh, I, I have uh, gone through your book also. That was published last year. And uh, yeah, so congratulations. You gave us a very uh, nuanced picture of how cricket was appropriated and became, became a tool of post-colonial identity in certain ways. Uh, so I have two sort of observations come questions. So, uh, so you are very right in recognizing this strange paradox, as you called it, that the way certain, in, uh, in certain uh, newly independent elites were, uh, you know, uh, suspicious about the potential of cricket. They wanted to discard it. And there were certain who embraced it quite enthusiastically. And uh, I hope, uh, and, and I think that that's a contribution of your book and of your work, because we tend to think that the popularity of cricket was almost given in post-colonial society. So that's uh, that's the contribution. My question is, uh, the second observation is like, it's, it's more kind of a methodological kind of question for you. Uh, why was, uh, what really explains this deep reluctance among historians, anthropologists, sports anthropologists uh, about the, this potential of cricket or any agonistic game. Because in my project, uh, I find this kind of reluctance, especially in the discipline of anthropology. So basically, throughout this post-colonial period and for a, very, for a very long period of time, anthropologists were suspicious of these potentials that you describe beautifully in your book, simply because of two reasons. Because they think that's this project of tracing identities through cricket or identity formations through cricket or any sports was, was a futile exercise because uh, cricket gave us a very non-permanent kind of identity kind of things. You were Indian or like Britisher as long as you were watching that game. So, so, this, so, so for them, this was kind of a non-permanent kind of identity thing. Secondly, uh, especially in my discipline in anthropology, Anthropologists were not interested in uh, studying the games which gave them these kind of win or loss binaries. They were most interested in, in the games 
which like which were not divided along these binaries so your observations on that and third point the kind in in the post 1970s and 80s the kind of literization around cricket in the we we witnessed similar kind of literization in hindi field also when people like prabhas joshi emerged on the scene and written extensively on on the various aspects of the game so i am suggesting that if we do a kind of cross cultural comparative study it can yield interesting insights and it can it can help you nuance your analysis also thank you thank you abhinav uh thanks abhinav uh thanks for your kind words first and then for two very fascinating questions so i'll come to the second one first initially i wanted to write a history of the entire post colonial india through cricket but realized that would take me like 10 or 15 years and i i even started learning marathi so that i i would be able to understand what the marathi intellectual had to say about cricket in the same way as i had written about bengali intellectuals and other commentators in general and i i definitely had read a lot of hindi vernacular uh, newspapers and magazines for their cricket content but then these things did not really lead into the content of my book because i just had to draw the line somewhere and i had to complete writing my phd in 3 years so that that's something that i would definitely think about in the future and i'm definitely open to collaborating with other people if they're interested because it it's certainly a very daunting task to read all the cricket writings that had emerged from across a country that is as vast as india that's certainly not really an individual project and secondly regarding methodology so although i am not exactly an anthropologist so i i find it pretty strange that the key methodology regarding the use of sport in anthropological writing really uh surrounds the binary of winning and losing because there have been anthropological studies of a lot of sports among tribal population among marginalized groups of people all over the world not simply in tahiti or borneo but also in afghanistan and in uh, different places in turkey but most of the time they have focused on sports that were more indigenous much more conventional and traditional with capital seas uh, and i i i i think this really relates to myopia among anthropologists in recognizing certain sports or rather isolating sports bracketing sports within several subcategories regarding how popular they were because popularity i don't think is a very useful metric of really examining any sport so for instance cricket is not really as important as football in calcutta but it had generated its own like fellowships of people who followed cricket quite ardently and it led to certain social relationships and social dynamics which were not really generated by football so popularity or whether a sport is performance oriented whether it's thousands years old whether it was transplanted from a different nations this shouldn't really uh differ anthropologists from pursuing a certain sport as an empirical material for their research okay um do we have any more questions in the room or online 
Yeah. Yes, I, I, you may excuse my ignorance because it's not my area at all, but um, I'm interested in how, when and how an Indian national team is formed. What, I don't know even know when it is, but what's the government involvement or whatever in that, in that process of creating a team, which obviously is going to represent in a sense the country. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. The government is not really formally involved in selecting the national team because cricket is run by the Board of Control for Cricket in India, which has been running cricket in the country since 1928 and is supposed to be free of government intervention. But on the other hand, it is run by politicians who have who are quite kind of embedded in ruling the country in several states or some pretty big ministers in the cabinet of the prime minister. So I wouldn't really claim that the administrative cricket is free of government interference, but so far we haven't really seen any complaint regarding government interference in selecting teams and it's the BCCI's responsibility fully. Um, we have a comment and a question in from the Zoom uh, from Sharon Wheeler. Um, that was a fascinating presentation, thank you. I'd be interested to hear Suvik's thoughts on the way cricket has built up a literary aura around it, such as with writers like C.L.R. James, and then through novels, of which a number are set in India. So, yeah, the literary um, aspect of cricket. Uh, that's a great question, and it really uh, needs several other books to answer it fully. Uh, Anthony Bettman has done it, Clear Westall has been doing it quite well. And regarding the... Indian novels regarding cricket, well, I have read a few, so there are perhaps at least 50 or 60 of them that have been published in the last 15, 20 odd years, particularly after 2003, there was a flurry of such novels in almost every language. So I, I was just talking about the novels in English and Bengali when I was talking about 50 or 60, and there are probably a lot more. Uh, they, some of these authors have pursued some philosophical questions such as how cricket gives meaning to the lives of the play or of the players and whether the administration of cricket is corrupt and how it really plays out in the larger wider context of Indian nationhood and different other social dynamics there, there have been novels that foreground several issues such as class or gender, which are quite important. And as such, they represent the way Indians think about cricket or play cricket. I wouldn't really comment on the literary merit of most of these novels mm -hmm. because I'm not really uh, willing or supposed mm -hmm. to. But some of these novels have become very popular, such as The Zoya Factor, which has been turned into a movie. Also, the movie Iqbal was kind of based on a novella rather than a novel. And then Three Mistakes of My Life, again, it was made into a movie. It was the third novel by Chetan Bhagat, which really hinges on cricket as a plot pivot. But yeah, the, these sorts of novels have become very popular because they have a legitimate market in India. Indians like to know more about cricket. and there are like millions of readers in the country. So even if a fraction of them buys these books, these novels can be caused, called a bestseller. So during my research, I had rung up a publisher and with a view to interviewing that person. And one of my questions was, so why did you venture into publishing books on cricket? He gave a two word answer because it sells. 
That was it. <laughs> um, do we have any more questions? Yeah. Starting off in the 19th century, when it was obviously much rather rather cold in this country than it is now, did the um, relative popularity of, of, of cricket in this country in India have anything to do with the, the better climate, a more, more conducive climate in India? I, I realise that the climate varies enormously. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, well, I, I wouldn't really say it had much to do with climate because of the variation in climate that you just talked about. And most of the places in which cricket was popular since the 19th century were in the coastal areas, which were somewhat more temperate than others. So cricket was not terribly popular in central India or northern India, where it, it was like very hot and humid. And it was fairly difficult for players even to stand on a hot and sunny day rather than just play. So if you look at the book by Lord Harris, uh, Short few runs, I think. No, or, yeah. A few short runs. A few short runs. Sorry, yeah, thanks. So he talks about the clothing of the cricketers, which were supposed to be very climate appropriate. So they, they would put on a solar hat and they would put on flannels. So typically that resembled whatever advice the British military would have given its soldiers when they went out in the heat in India. So cricket had this sense that the English people needed to protect their bodies from the Indian sun. They had to be very careful when they were playing cricket, mainly because it took place over an entire day, unlike football, which was just a matter of an afternoon or half an afternoon. So they had to be super careful and even the Indians followed suit. So they appropriated British clothing and playing in dhotis and other sorts of clothing, they were like few and far between. So they were like rare instances in which cricket's Englishness through clothing was subverted. But most of the time, I would say climate had an impact because maybe that kind of uh, tells us why cricket was more popular in the coastal regions. But even then, these were the very settlements in, in which had a larger British presence yeah. than other parts of India. Yeah. Hi, um, I hope you don't mind if I um, uh, contribute to what Sharon Wheeler mm. said there, uh, because the crossover between the literary sphere and the cricketing sphere is, is what my PhD project is on. And one thing that's really striking is that the, the literarization of cricket has been there, um, as, as Bateman says, right from the start. The, um, in, the, in the early 19th century, from before um, before cricket really took off, even in England, when it was a pretty niche pursuit, uh, the, the, the first place it sort of establishes in the culture is it's written into the culture by um, books like um, The Cricketers of My Time by John Marin, mm -hmm. uh, looking back nostalgically to the 18th century when all the really good cricket had been played, long before <laughs> the golden age of cricket. So I'm fascinated to yeah. hear what you have to say about how true that, that remains in India as well, uh, because I've been looking at just England. But um, it, the, this is something that uh, the nostalgia attached to the game and the literary aspects attached to the game are, um, I, you, you will corroborate, corroborate me on this, are uh, there right from the start.
Yes, pretty much so. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point because Indian authors more or less followed the precedent set by English authors and the likes of Nairen or E.W. Pornham and several other authors who have written about cricket, even Arthur Conan Doyle, Spetigus Dropper. Mm-hmm. So they crop up quite frequently in Indian cricket writing. So sometimes they, they, these kinds of stories were translated in Bengali at least in the 1950s and 60s. So there, there were several translations of autobiographies of leading cricketers in Bengali, even in the 1950s, I, and in some of the major vernacular languages. And that really gave the people of India a flair for understanding world cricket. So they, they, they were the, these were the tools through which they tried to understand what cricket was really all about. And the works of naval girders, were not really translated until the 1970s, I would say, but even then, most of the people that I have interviewed, they seem to know about Carters and they had read most of his books. So he was like widely popular in India, so were the likes of Arlott, Swanton, Robinson, and there was a lot of appropriation of their writings, which really percolated through the vernacular medium and reached the common people of Bengal. Okay, do we have any more questions? Maybe we'll wrap it up there. But before, um, before we thank Suvik again for giving an excellent paper and um, excellent answers to your excellent questions, um, I'll just note that this is uh, the last um, seminar of this term. Unfortunately, um, we couldn't get together a, a full programme this term, but we do have a full programme in 2024 from January through to uh, June in the summer. Those of you who are interested in cricket history will also be interested to know that on the 2nd of February, which is a Friday, BSSH, the IHR and the Cricket Society will be hosting a special day on Caribbean cricket with the Guyanese historian Clem Sicheran speaking in the afternoon at that event with David Woodhouse and we expect Simon Lister as well to be in. So if you know your West Indian cricket, you'll know that those are very, three very significant writers on the history of the Caribbean. And indeed, Clem Sicharan is very interested in Indian cricket as well because, of course, he's from a, an Indian heritage. Um, but thank you, everybody, for attending. Um, do look out for the details of uh, our further seminars on the website of the AHR. And I'll wrap up by saying thank you very much, Suvik. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much.